I don't think we can we can totally remove. You know, there's always these dystopian future ideas where you know you're kind of matrix sized, where you're sitting in a you know <laughs> a little uh, test tube of fluid, and you got these electrodes on your brain, and every experience you have is being programmed into you from a giant artificial intelligence versus actually really doing something. And I guess where I'm getting at is the risk is part of the human factor as well. The risk is part of the draw, the attraction. The risk is what makes us human. So you've got to, and the only way you get risk is by having incidents. If there were no incidents, if this was 100% safe, you would be saying, there's really no draw for it to me. I mean, there is the beauty in being underwater, but you lose a huge portion of the draw, which is the challenge in rising up to it. And, you know, it's kind of mankind, period. Yeah, and, and this is, uh, this is the, the, the breakup between the sport diving industry yeah. and, you know, where a lot of people want it to go is that is, is diving all about letting everyone spend their money in this industry so they can go down and see a cool fish in a cool shipwreck? Or is it something deeper that, that you and I find a passion in? Yeah. And I think, I think we're a long way from settling that argument. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, these are all great discussions. I, I love delving into the reasons why I do almost yeah, anything. Yeah, me too. This is fun. Anyway. Let me ask you a serious question. Shoot. You want the red pill or you want the blue yes. pill? Yes. I take the red. I want the, I want the truth, baby. The Great Dive Podcast is hosted by your buddies, James and Brando. Okay, so hey, dude, we got a we got a busy week this week. Yeah, it's been busy. There's a lot. There's a lot going we, on. We uh, we had our we looked at our plate and it was you know kind of scant, a few things on it. Then we decided to throw everything in the buffet on it. We just threw all of it on there. And uh, yeah, I'm you're you're gonna be you're being gluttonous. I'm gluttonous. With this yes. uh, little bra- this little opening of weather, you're gonna, you're trying to be a little too well, gluttonous out there. And the- I think our eyes were bigger than in our than our stomach in the sense that, you know, the weather is kind of crappy. You're stuck inside. You think, yeah, I'm gonna throw myself into the Great Dive podcast production, and that's what I'm gonna do with all my time. <laughs> right, wow. right, right. And then now we we've got pandemic madness is going wild i mean the, I mean, the, the votes are coming in like crazy right uh, tiffany tiffany's tally- out i mean ta- tiffany's nice tiffany's she's out. got the I've covid 1984 these, votes, these these battles are just they're exciting to to see just how uh, i mean there's and the, the the cool thing is is of all of all of these names that we came up with th- there's not 
a single one of them that isn't getting any participation. Nice, nice. Well, that's what we want. So yeah. it's so I think we came up with a, a pretty solid sixty-four names. I got a I got a little bit of a jib from oh, Simon. Uh, Simon, yeah. you know, because it's uh, mostly U.S. based. But again, uh, these were these names came in through our listeners mostly. Well, we were well, we are Americans. We're U.S. and basically yeah, we're like yeah, no, we're the world little... doesn't exist outside of these these four borders. I mean, Alaska we're and Hawaii the... are barely in there. <laughs> So don't feel bad, Simon. I, notice we don't have anybody from Alaska or Hawaii on our own goddamn yes. list, Simon. So we are we are in the bubble of the continental U.S. We apologize yeah. for that. But no, there are some foreigners. But hey, that just goes to show that next year, if we do this again, we need more votes from people outside. So in reality, this is kind of his own fault for not listening to the Great Time Podcast more often, where he could have been making some suggestions of outside names outside of the United States. Are there really any other divers? I mean, Jacques Cousteau was outside of the United States. What are you talking about? Uh, Falco. Yeah, yeah. We, we, we got, got Didi. Yeah, we got quite a few. We got, the, you know, the whole, I mean, the major players on the uh, Calypso team are all outside of the United States. And they're, you know, basically the forefathers of our, our great activity here. So I. And I'm glad to see that we've been getting a lot of emails and comments from people who actually are showing up in this bracket who are participating and playing along i'm I'm really glad to see that everybody's enjoying the fun of this didn't get upset yet by getting put into it that everybody's it's still early james still early this is uh 64 baby this is this is the first round and right and yeah that's true we have a lot of time where we can really like insult someone not purposely but it can be taken, taken the wrong way. It's all way. fun and games until you. <laughs> it's all fun and games until you lose to the cartoon Aquaman. Exactly, right there. That match right there might bring about the wrath, you know. And you still report to him in a certain aspect, and he might get you. He might have a grudge to I hold. I know it. I know it. But hey, listen, he's got to get out there and, and you know get his friends and buddies to vote. get in there and yeah. vote. His underlings vote or not, else. We're, we're not sitting back here behind the behind the curtain picking the winners. The, the, <laughs> the people are out there voting, and I'm, I'm just tallying them up. But hey, I, in addition to that, we've also so we also have coming up here next week is a release by our buddy Gareth Locke. So in case you guys don't remember, because we've talked to Gareth, we've interviewed him, and. Uh, we love his work, have a lot of respect for what he does, and really believe in, in what he's doing. He is the creator of the Human Factors in Diving, or Human Factors and Skills in Diving for you. But he's got a new, what do you want to call it, a new video to release, kind of detailing uh, a, an accident, uh, a diving fatality, and, and how it was how it happened basically and what what human factors in diving looks at to try to determine what's really at the root cause of these accidents the psychology of the human behavior in in the events leading up to the accident i guess right because it's it's so easy to look at these incidents particularly fatalities and say Oh, how stupid. He forgot to turn a valve. Right, right. What an idiot. But what we don't see is all the stuff the day of, the week of, the months leading up to that let 
that that led up to the rushing, that led up to the mistakes. Yeah, the the and, stress. Uh, this is involved, a really yeah. really interesting way to to look at this this very unfortunate incident and how to actually get something out of it other than who do we blame who do we sue because of right this. It, you know the typical the instructor's fault or the typical you know again he should have turned the valve on or whatever typically in the accident blame game it it's that easy and it's that simple for a lot of people reading the accidents to to do they just react in that way versus what gareth has done which is examine really what caused the the way of thinking or the behavior of the diver that was involved with the accident or the divers involved with the accident and try to change that. Yeah, exciting mm-hmm. stuff, man. That's, uh, so that's coming up Wednesday the 20th, right? Wednesday the He's 20th, releasing that when- right. Yeah, so everybody look out for that. Okay, so, well, hey, listen. Welcome to the Great Dive Podcast, everybody. Welcome, fellow quarantiners. You're here with your pandemic madness hosting, Jamesy, and your <laughs> celebrity diver deathmatch picking Brando. And we are here with an exciting episode for you guys today. So we have the early days of technical diving aquacore magazine incident reports that were just re-released on the GUE blog uh, for in-depth magazine from the years of 1992 to 1996 so back in the day old editor-in-chief of this magazine now michael menduno was putting out aquacore and he had a section in the magazine of incident reports and it was one of the early early stages of really breaking down accidents that were happening how and why and this collection has 44 different incidents in it uh, that resulted in 39 fatalities 12 injuries that took place in the mid-1990s and just uh just in case people don't realize uh, Michael Menduno, who put out Aquacore back in the day, he's also one of our 64 pandemic madness divers going mano a mano for the championship of pandemic madness. Um, he's going up against I, I, Kathy Church. Right, photo legend Kathy Church. It's a battle. I'm, I'm telling Kathy, you right now. Kathy's been, weighed in on this. Been, She's voted already. Kathy's been in. She's voted. She's uh, sent us messages. Uh, it's exciting. And I tell you, those two are, it's a slugfest. Right now, she's they, got him. Back and forth, back she's and forth. She's got him against the ropes, they're, man. They're, they're, neck and, they're neck and neck. It's a, it's an ex, this is an, an exciting matchup, no I doubt I think about Michael it. might have to, you know, make a statement. He might have to come out. He might have to say something and, and get this thing going and really take it away from her. Otherwise, I, I, he he needs uh, he needs somebody in his corner to splash some water on his face and get him get him revved back up because he's he's taking a beating right now. It's it's a close one. But I just thought I'd point that out because I, I when we start talking about Michael, we're we're big fans both of us for everything he's done for the industry, uh, especially during the tech days, the early tech days, bringing out Aquacore magazine and many other great great uh, diving works. So. And he's still heavily involved, so that's 
why I'm like rooting for you. But you know, Kathy's she's tough. Uh, Kathy's a, a a very tough competitor. I mean, she's taught thousands of people the the art of underwater photography with her time down in the Cayman Islands there. So I know she's got a, a huge amount of fans from all walks of life, all levels of diving. Uh, young, old, men, women have a ton of respect for her. So he's he's on one of those early matches that's a, that's a real tough battle. It's going to be good. So he gives us an introduction, recapping kind of what he was doing back in these days. And he starts off by saying, unlike the military and commercial diving communities, which made the transition to mixed gas technology with the benefit of deep pockets, extensive infrastructure, and tightly controlled diving operations, the sports diving community uh, adoption of mixed and rebreather technology was largely a do-it-yourself venture. He mentions that we began reporting on these accidents in his magazine, Aquacore Journal, and its sister publication, The Technical Diver, in 1992, and continued until our final issue in January of 1996. We tried to include all of the tech diving accidents that occurred in between issues, though they were undoubtedly incidents that were not reported. We formalized these in a column titled Incident Reports, which first appeared in Aquacore number 6, Computing, back in 1993, and quickly became the best-read section of the magazine. Because that's where you would get, like, like real stories of, of what was happening on dives and fatalities that occurred and wild incidents. Huge right? learning opportunity, you know, and that's what I, that's how I would look at those accident analysis or those accident reports um and that's why you'd look for them in the magazines you know that that's what i used the magazines for i wasn't a big you know travel agent guy i was more of the diving guy i wanted to learn about diving so a magazine like aquacore came out and actually had the diving reports the fatality reports you could go in and read and actually you know maybe learn something that's valuable so that that was great the reports were based on accident analysis approach pioneered by famed explorer Sheck Exley in his book, Basic Cave Diving, A Blueprint for Survival, which you and I have gone through earlier, uh, earlier episodes. Yes. And uh, you can still get that. It's a f- you can find it online you know, as a free download, uh, like a PDF version of it on uh, the uh, NSS CDS site. Uh, or you can order the actual physical copy. The nice little blue paperback, little looks like a little handbook that, that I have. It's a, it's a great one to have in your collection for any, any diver out there. But he mentions that he did much of the reporting, but he also received reports from Bill Hamilton, Bill Stone, Rob Palmer, Jim Bowden, Ann Christovich, Denny Willis, and others. Now he says, our goal, which was arguably in line with what human factors experts like Gareth Locke call just culture was to present an objective non-judgmental report of what went wrong leaving out the names of the divers involved so that we could all learn from others mistakes and experience however divers in three high profile accidents were named in reports published by aquacore they were chris and chrissy roos in 1992 the subject of bertie chowdhury's book the last dive which was published in 2000 
British cave diver Ian Rowland in 1994, who was part of Dr. Bill Stone's Sistema Hotula expedition, and Sheck Exley, 1994, whose accident report was reprinted in Aquacore with permission from the Undersea Hyperbaric Medical Society's newsletter, Pressure. Arguably, though extremely valuable, this type of reporting is largely absent today and would likely be very difficult to conduct in today's litigious environment. In total, we reported 42 incidents, 11 of which were non-fatal and six involving two or more deaths for a total of 38 fatalities. Though accidents typically involve numerous factors, some broad observations can be drawn from the reports. And this largely made up a lot of the, the framework for how education is done nowadays, from, especially from those early technical diver days of it's all balls and brawn to get deep in the water. Well, yeah, you had to, you had to look at the accident reports. And again, we look at the behavior and the psychology that that balls and brawn kind of approach uh, seem to motivate divers to try to out out macho each other. I guess is the word. I don't know what you want to call it, but to to try to do more with less, to try to you know show your bravado. You'll look at these these you know. There's a couple of incidents detailed in this article, and you look at you know like diving the Doria on overpressurized twin seventy twos. Like you right. know, let's try to. I could do it on a single, I bet, and I'll overpressure. I, you know, you know that's kind of the mentality that y- y- you got to wonder: is that going on there? Knowing what I know and being around divers, I, especially in that time frame in that era, yeah, for sure. I think James, you can also say, you know, some divers, you know, some instructors that instructed you that really had this mentality of. Oh yeah, know, no doubt about it. I mean. Like in the early days, you look at like the the steel seventy two tank. It was thought of by many people as being the perfect size cylinder because it only carried enough gas, so that you would definitely get you definitely would get too low on gas before you could ever really run into a decompression obligation. Was was the thought yeah, like early? Just on. that mentality alone, you've got to wonder: aren't we approaching it in a kind of a? I don't know, wrong is the right word, but kind of misguided approach. Like, let's just carry enough so that we'll run out of gas before we go into deco, really. Versus, well, what the fuck, you know? <laughs> well, that was, that was the early thing. And then you see where they started to, you know, immediately break that as soon as they realized that they were limiting themselves on time underwater so you got into the 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 twin 72s you got into people doing dives like this back in the you know what was the the late 70s when they really started first getting out to the doria and then dropping into 200 plus feet of water quickly running out of time and realizing that we want to stay longer we want to start taking artifacts from this wreck and getting inside and taking artifacts in the wreck, it's no doubt that they started overpressurizing the bottles a little bit, building up these huge obligations. All they were diving was air early mm-hmm. on. And then 20 years later, in the 90s, when the activity really started to climb, that's when you really started to start you know, seeing a lot of these issues. Yeah, they're still doing it. I mean, they started doing it in the 70s, 80s. 
Still going strong in the nineties, yeah. You know, and in some in some respects, even in the two thousands, twenty twenty twenties. Well, you do have you do have a. a there's always a holdovers. There's always, you know, old school. I like to consider myself old school, old school purist on a lot of, you know, things with diving. But when it, in regards to, you know, safety aspects and gas planning and, and the dive plan, I, I do think I try to roll with the changes. But, but yeah, you, I mean, this, this, the accidents that they just listed that we just talked about, that was in 92. So, Right. Now, he says that 15 of 44 incidents, 34%, involved deep air diving, which was still a thing for much of the 1990s. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was still a thing into the 2000s. As a matter of fact, we... 2010s, it was still a, still a thing. It's, it's, it's dwindling away, but it's not, it's not something that you don't see anymore because I still see people today that are... You know, uh, dropping onto shipwrecks in the Great Lakes, 200 feet of water. An air, You know, yeah. deep air. I was going to say, there's still some holdovers. There's still some folks that'll argue it with you. Uh, I can remember teaching in the, in the uh, two th- you know, early 2000s, mid-2000s. Um, and we're teaching trimix instructors and whatnot, but they're still arguing deep air. You know. Right. And and even today, somebody gets certified today. You know, they they get out on a couple of shipwrecks. All these are really amazing, really cool stuff. Oh, hey, the deeper ones are even in better condition. Let's get out a little bit deeper. It's just go down, breathe, and come up. How hard can it be? That's why I bought the top of the line Perdex because it's going to tell me. You know, regardless of what I'm breathing, it's going to calculate an algorithm to get me home because the the big assumption is. Well, it's just don't get bent and you'll be fine. But there's so much more to it than than just the the decompression algorithm. Well, yeah, I mean, when you're knocked out of your gourd and you get, you know, your line gets messed up, or you you have two lines going to the wreck and you go you go up the wrong one that's cut off mid water and you're now you're floating out in the middle of nowhere. And right, maybe right. That, it's that, it's super yeah. it's super easy. Until it's exactly. not. Everything's cool until it's not. Exactly. I mean, and nobody goes out saying, I'm I'm planning to die today. I'm planning to drown today. I'm planning to fuck up my reel or I'm planning to get lost inside the wreck. Nobody says that, you know. So take away that, you know, that option and, and you start to realize these accidents are unplanned and that's what you... That's the biggest thing. That's the biggest argument that I would give to to the deep air divers is you're not planning on being narked out of your gourd to the point that you can't think or what you think is happening isn't really happening. Yeah, exactly. And and what starts off maybe another deep air dive where you're just a little bit narked and feeling good, mm-hmm. uh, and then you realize uh, I got a little little bit of a leak at my neck seal. I'm, I'm colder than I normally would be. <laughs> Or I'm, uh, there's a little bit of a flow and a current, and I'm working a little bit harder than I would be, and that CO2 is building up a little bit. And that, on top of the narcosis, on top of the CO2, yeah. on top of the chill, like all these things just exponentially explode and make something that, yeah, 99 times out of 100 would have been a, a tolerable level. Now, Not so much. You've, you've lost control yeah, of the, it. 
you know, and, and that, that's where you have the issues. Yeah, you bring up the CO2, which is huge. You're breathing air deep, which starts to become like, it's thick like uh, syrup, you know. It's, it's, not, it's not easy to move in and out of your lungs as it gets more and more dense from your depth. So your ability to exchange and get rid of your CO2 becomes less and less. It becomes more and more hindered. So that CO2 is extremely narcotic as well in and of itself. Now add the partial pressures of being down at 200 feet, 300 feet, wherever you're at, on top of the nitrogen partial pressure. Uh, it's a snowball. It's a snowball that's going to get you. It's, I don't know. I, again, I can recall the days of arguing, you know, these Internet discussions that would turn into debates about deep air versus helium and their whole their whole big argument against it was it's it's so hard to decompress out of helium it's more dangerous it's more risky which i think everybody can pretty much agree that's really not true right right yeah well the the, the issue was is it, it came out fast everybody would fast. say oh helium comes out of your tissues so fast you're going to you know it, it's so dangerous to dive but the the fact of the matter is it doesn't matter if you're doing a 250 foot dive or a 60 foot dive you have to decompress exactly you have to come up slow it doesn't matter it do, yeah it doesn't matter what you're doing um 23% of the cases involved breathing the wrong mix oops oopsie yeah that that and, you know he mentions yeah go ahead he mentions, yeah, yeah. So he mentions that at the time, protocols for cylinder labeling and gas switching were not standardized. No, they were, they were. Hey, not, whatever not, works for you, you know. Put them on the left, the right. Put them all over the place. You can, you know. People were not following any strict protocol as far as permanently labeling bottles. So they were mixing and matching. They're, oh, I'll just label. I'll put a piece of duct tape over it and write real quick, and then they forget to. Or they forget the analysis, right? Or there was, uh, there was. I'm gonna put the yes, the, gre- <laughs> the green mouthpiece. I'm gonna put the green yeah. mouthpiece on the O2 right. reg, which you know when you're in 200 you know, feet of water, those deep, there's deep no depths. Yeah. It's the, the, all those colors look almost a blue the same. one on this one and a green one on that one, or a red one and a black yeah, exactly. one. You get it. You get down to you know 100 feet. Red and black are pretty much the same. <laughs> yeah, and then let let alone you throw a little bit of narcosis oh, yeah. on top of that. Yeah, exactly. You know, and 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 then there were, and for a long time, you know, left lean, right rich yes. for mixes. But but then I mean, you were reading stories into the late two thousands of people still making that mistake of putting the the lean bottle on Oops. the right by mistake, yeah. or the in the rich bottle on the left, and just this flip flopping them or, over. Let's throw in some uh, independent twins on there uh, where they put different gases on different sides or forget to mix, you know, top off one side. So they got the O2 in there. They topped off O2 in each side, topped off one side, forgot the other in their haste. You know, no protocols, yeah, no uh, procedures. Yeah, so this, this was definitely the, the Wild West days of technical. It was life. awesome. <laughs> You could uh, you could have a duel right on the back of the boat, <laughs> legitimately, because you're diving in international yeah. waters. You know, so it didn't really matter. This boat ain't big enough for the two of us. Eleven <laughs> percent involved out of gas incidents. 
7% involved a lack of training. And another 7% involved omitted decompression, which seems like just, I mean, that's just a, a frightening story of things being so messed up on the dive that you just, mm-hmm. you, you, you do what like a brand new beginner that got rushed through an open water class, you know, the, the spouse of somebody who really wants to dive isn't there on the, their own merit that kind of gets pushed through a course just so that the couple can do the dive to the Cayman Islands. They get in the water, they're uncomfortable, leaky mask, and I'm going to the surface right the hell now from 25, 30 feet. But you take that into these early technical days of being in 200-plus feet of water, right, and abandoning all hope, Yeah, going to the surface, thinking that there's safety up there. Wow, just horrific to think of. (laughs) Yeah, that's in that... That's got to be a painful way to go. You know what I mean? So, yeah, and Michael mentions the community was painfully aware of these incidents and various efforts, including promoting best practices, for example, through Aquacore's Blueprint for Survival 2.0, an update of Exley's recommendations for mixed gas diving, which we had an episode covering that very article uh, early on in our show, improved training. And the creation of operational diving standards such as the WKPPs and later GUEs DIR standards were advanced to improve diving safety. By the late 90s, it seemed as if tech diving had improved. Safety had improved, sure. Uh, Well, that was huge. That's when I found DIR, you know, uh, and that's why I, I went to it. I've been I had been on deep air. I had been on helium, and I knew the benefits of helium, and they were preaching, basically singing my song. But there, there's where George came in, George, who's also one of our contenders, coming up there. I'm gonna try to put. I'm gonna try yeah, to so plug George, our 64 by the way, uh, pandemic George madness. George is, uh, yeah, yeah. George is doing good, but he's, uh, it's a, he's got a tough fight. I, I don't know. We'll, uh, we'll see where that one goes. But yeah, so the early early days of dir i think the big problem with why it was so resisted yeah so resisted was because you had so many people that were doing these very things and and right living that were doing the deep air (laughs) that were mixing you know mixing up or, or i should say they were going to different mixes because of left lean right rich green mouthpiece blue tape you know whatever they were doing uh they were doing all this stuff and they were the guy that was standing just to the side of the snowball rolling down the hill right. right they didn't get hit by the snowball they watched it go past and the assumption was well you got to be aware yeah right you got to be you got to be watching out for the snowballs not realizing it's going to get you there's the other yeah. one. There's, There's another the one, one right there. Yeah, you 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 dodged one to be whacked by the other. Yeah, you know it, it, it reminds me of going back to you know the when I went and did like back in the early 2000s went and did that dive with the great white sharks off of Isla Guadalupe, yeah. you know, and we were you're in the cage, and they said, "Do not stick your hands." <laughs> or any part of your body 
outside of the yeah. cage for any reason. Do not do not stick your camera out further, you know, to get a better shot, right? If if we see you doing that, we are gonna, you know, whack you in the head with this big long pole. <laughs> you know, and if you drop your camera into seven hundred feet of water, it's gone. Oh yeah. well, you lost your camera. Like do not do it because you're sitting there looking at that one shark that you're taking a picture of, but there's chum in the water. What you don't realize is th- there could easily be another one coming from a different angle that you don't even realize is there. <laughs> and, and this is the issue with a lot of people is they thought it was all just be tough, be strong, not realizing that, that there were other factors that could creep up and hit you unexpectedly that would lead like we said a minute ago, a normal level of narcosis tolerance to deep air could catch you off guard. Even the best of the best could catch you off guard. And if the if the snowball was rolling down the hill at a slightly different angle, yeah. Yeah, I mean, again, we get back to that argument. People just hung on to that, you know, that deep air mentality. And I don't know if it's some people don't like authority. They don't, they viewed the quote-unquote DIR guys is some type of a th- coming off as some kind of authority. Well, my my thing with them, why I thought what they had to say was important was, A, they had tens to hundreds of thousands of diving hours put into developing that protocol. It wasn't just a couple of guys who said, this works best for us. It was teams of divers doing extremely deep diving, looking at the fatalities, having lost many people. Uh, they that's how the the system was evolved and and developed right because they they got sick of losing well people. yeah it it doesn't look good when you're trying to get you know funding for a project and you you you're turning out dead people right so yeah no doubt so about they, it not to mention they wanted to have a, a standardized method a uniform protocol you know taking the model from the military who who has an incredible safety record on diving? Um, not that they do the exact same thing as the military. The military doesn't doesn't do the type of diving that the WKPP is doing. So they had to look at it completely differently. And I think the thing the the procedures and the standards they came out with, again, were from hundreds of thousands of dives or diving hours. And you are arguing with somebody who says. This works for me. That's that was the, always their argument. What works works, and it works for me. Well, the problem is you're not the only one on. You know, you're not the only one. You're down there with another person too, and it works until it doesn't. What are you basing this on? How many hours of diving do you have? Do you have hundreds of thousands in that environment? And and on top of that, it, it might work for you, but the question is, is it a scalable system? Yeah. That can work for everyone. Well, they don't care about and that. I, yeah. And I get what well, they don't care no. about that. And and I get that it does work for them. And I, I've got a lot of respect for a lot of those early guys that were out there doing it. And a lot of them were put, putting in tons of hours and tons of dives. And they had a very, very knowledgeable and workable system specifically for them. Yeah. But it wasn't scalable. And that was the issue. Okay. Right? It, 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 it couldn't be reproduced because... Giving giving your idea to somebody else, they because they don't have that same experience. They're not you. Of, <laughs> you know exactly. There's right? so much. Which is yeah. What, go ahead, James. I'm sorry. 
Which is where what I think what DIR was saying is that very thing is, no, no, we need a system that's going to be scalable, that's going to work all the time, every time that everybody's on board with. And if you even look at the the, the early, you know, writings of, of what JJ was saying with that, with the WKPP was, it's not that we sat down and we, we put together an Excel spreadsheet and, you know, DIR as we know it won yeah. for being the best. It was some of us were using it, some of us weren't. We had to pick one system. We had to have every, and go yeah, with it. everyone on the same page. We had to, yeah. yeah, we had to have everybody on the same page. This is just the one we picked. We went with it, and the the, the fact of the standardization, the fact of everybody being on board and never having the question mark, is what really took it to the next level. Agreed. Yeah. That's, uh, it's at, you know, looking at the, the psychology and the behavior of all of this, of, of technical diving and diving in general, that's, that's really what I think at the root of it all is going to increase safety. And that's where we go back to, to Gareth. And, and of course, I don't want this to come across as we're just a couple DIR fanboys and this is what, this is what this is all about. D, you know, there may be other protocol or other systems. I haven't heard of them. There's DIR, and, and then there's a bunch of everything else. I haven't heard anybody else say, okay, we got this other system. It's very, uh, you know, it, it's uh, not DIR, but it has the same tenets in the sense of we are all uniform system, and, and it works. I haven't heard of that, but maybe there is. Not surprising, Michael says, in all but two of the incidents presented, divers were using open-circuit scuba. There were only a small number of rebreathers available in the technical diving community in the early and mid-90s. Rebreather use started growing in earnest in the late 90s with the introduction of AP Diving's Inspiration, the first production line sport rebreather in 1997, and the original KISS rebreather in 1998, which were soon followed by others. Along with the growth of these units, rebreather fatalities also grew, creating a second wave of tech diving fatalities beginning in the 2000s. In 2012, hyperbaric physician and rebreather diver Andrew Fock presented the findings of his research on rebreather fatalities titled Killing Them Softly at the Rebreather Forum 3.0 held in Orlando, Florida. Fock concluded that the risk of dying on a rebreather was 10 times that of open-circuit scuba. Oh, just 10 times? <laughs> 10 times. His paper, Analysis of Recreational Closed-Circuit Rebreather Deaths, 1998 to 2010, was published in 2013 in Diving and Hyperbaric Medicine. From 98 to 2018, there were approximately 313 fatalities, or an average of about 16 deaths per year. This average has improved slightly down to 14.8 per year from 2013 to 2018. While rebreather use is seen to have grown, the belief today among the community is that rebreather safety has improved. Well, I'd have to agree just by that number. I mean, if you go from, you know, basically 16 deaths per year uh, back in early, you know, 98 time frame up to 14 8. 0.8 deaths per year by 2018, but the usage has increased. Your percentage is, you know, your safety margin has increased tremendously because you're still doing the same amount of, 
out of fatalities, but in a bigger population of divers using rebreathers. So yeah, I'd have to agree the safety margin has increased tremendously. You know, I know so many breather divers now, and breathers are, you know, fairly common. Yeah, they're at one point they were such a out there shocking sight on a dive boat, but now it's it's not uncommon to have multiple units on any specific charter you get out of. Right, and I think a lot of it has to do with uh, you know increased uh, safety and teaching, you know, their education. The, some of the technology that's developed to monitor, you know, gas PO2s, you know, whatnot. Uh, the protocol in pre-dive and post-dive maintenance on the breather. All of all of those things have improved over the years, basically coming from analysis of incidents. Well, yeah, it is the, that analysis for sure. But I would say that I think a lot of the growth of the rebreather market was that people were dumping so much money into the design of them. Yeah. And then, you know, at the end, you know, they're like, well, shit, we got to sell some of these. Right. You know, we, we, we gotta, we gotta make, get some sort of a return back. So there was a, there was a big stretch of, we need to sell units. We need to make instructors for these units, which in many ways, perpetuated some of the problems of diet. Perhaps, perhaps. I mean, the way they went about it versus the way, you know, a major recreational training agency went about, you know, just scuba, just open circuit recreational scuba, the push, right? I think the rebreather community, their agencies went about it much smarter. Maybe they looked at the big agencies that pushed recreational and had gone from a high-quality, intense course you know marketed to a certain demographic to this extremely easy nothing course marketed to the entire world to everybody uh they said well let's not do that because that way produces fatalities we already have a problem with fatalities let's let's look at the way technical diving is being pushed a little bit which is we have to develop protocol and and we have to keep safety as our number one you know, factor of highest importance, uh, not the dollar sign necessarily, right? Yeah, wow, yeah, good point. That's my. That's just my viewpoint watching it grow over the years is, yes, you're, we're still losing divers on breathers for a lot of the same reasons from the beginning, and I don't know, you know, how you can get rid of every single possible way to kill yourself diving, especially in a breather, but their safety has improved dramatically i mean yeah no, the 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 inherent safety of being on the unit has improved right drastically right it hasn't completely eliminated i mean at the end of the day i guess you have to realize i'm a human being going underwater right that mere fact is th- there's a possibility of not coming home. Well, I, you know, it's funny you mention this because we can look out today in, in the world and you got to realize you're a human being and everything's not safe all the time. You know, you don't have any guarantees that you're going to make it. Uh, so this, you know, you must have safety at all costs. You can go to the ridiculous end like we're seeing to a certain extent play out today. Uh, 
And that's what I look at, you know, rebreather diving or even open, open circuit diving. You can't eliminate all risk. There's no, there's no uh, absolute in that direction. You can't do it. It's impossible. You know, that's the only absolute is that it's impossible. Right. Yep, yep, exactly. I'm with you. I'm with you. It's, it's, so, it's so wild to, to think. Like I, I'm fascinated by, like, the psychology of, of it yeah. all. You know, a lot of times and it's like, you know, just how our brains are wired in the little nuances of decision making and thinking that, you know, cavemen at one time, you know, had this, you know, fight flight response and how to deal with the situation just based off of, you know, is a saber tooth tiger in this cave that I want to <laughs> go take a get some rest, rest and, you know is in many ways a lot of the same decision-making that occurs when something goes wrong on a dive underwater. And so just relying on the technology of the unit to bring you home is, in my opinion, a shortcoming over training out a way of thinking, a protocol, a course of action that deals with the, the looking back at incidents like this which, which I find to be so important for, for everybody as a whole. Well, yeah, I think you just hit on something that we talk about a lot is this reliance on technology versus, you know, being able to do it, quote, unquote, analog still. Uh, it's one thing to have the technology. It's a nice luxury. It does make things simple. But to completely rely on it, in my humble opinion, and I think you share this with me, in this day and age, it's not 100% reliable. So it's nice to have the backup of knowing, hey, when my computer fails, I still know what the hell I'm doing. Right? Right, it, yeah. It, I mean, it's like these uh, vehicles nowadays that, you know, every, they knew that parallel parking was difficult <laughs> right, for, for so many people. Yeah. So let's just design a system that we just click a button but and it parallel parks a car for us. The downside is when that doesn't work... <laughs> you're like a moron. You're like, I don't know how to parallel park. Well, they've removed it from the driver's ed in many states. You know that. There's no parallel parking requirement anymore. And I you know, I have four kids and recall, you know, I recall my daughter having to, my, my one daughter, having to do the parallel parking. We had a Ford Flex that she was using at the time, and she had never been able to parallel park well. And so she gets into the test. And she wasn't doing great on her, her road test. She wasn't doing horrible. She wasn't doing great. She had to do the parallel parking, and she nailed, you know, the Ford Flex is a pretty big car. You know, it's long. Yeah. And she nailed it, like, boom, like she'd been doing it all her life. She gained a lot of confidence from it. But I guess the whole thing is she doesn't, she knows better than to rely on something like electronic automatic crap that you don't have any idea of what's going on it's like teaching you kids in school they don't want to teach them math anymore because you always have calculators well what happens when you don't and isn't it good to understand what's going on not just do as you're told understand what you're doing and this is the you know to equate it back to to rebreathers and open circuit and whatnot and relying on that technology even rebreathers now what's their fail safe boom you go back to open circuit. You have open circuit bailout. So I don't know. I don't know. What, I'm hoping I'm, I'm coming across in the right way. Like you're getting the idea. Like the the problems with rebreathers are it's technology. It can fail on you. 
it requires maintenance, meticulous maintenance, pre and post dive. And the human factor in that is is where the, Bingo. the problem can happen. Well, I think that's a, exactly where you and I will always come to is there's always that human element. Right. That no matter how how fail-safe anything can be, if you've ignored the fact that human decision-making can mess anything up along the way and you're just relying on the technology, all you're doing is you're just pushing off further and further. Yeah. Somewhere along the way, you're going to run face-to-face with that human element. Exactly. And just and just crossing your fingers and hoping that it never never shows up, I, I think you're lying to yourself. Well, I agree. I agree. Even technology is not 100% fail-safe. So, you know, us as humans and technology, electronics, and, and neither one are 100%. So you, but a blend of them together can be really, you know, if you know how to do both, they can be really, really uh, even increase your odds even more. Yeah, I'm with you, man. But yeah, yeah. So, so I'm going to take this one step deeper, though, because we get in. Oh, uh, no. oh. yeah, because I want to go, go way out there in woo-woo land. But I mean, I want to ask you this: Would you still be diving if diving was, you know, like crocheting, ultra safe? Well, see, I, I know exactly where you're going, and, and I think there there's a a lot of respect to be had for doing the long math. Yeah. Right. I mean, there's a there's a I find value in diving, knowing that I know the long division for coming home. You know what I mean? Yeah. That that I'm not just looking at that little computer screen to tell me, go here, go here, go here, go here, that I've had to put my brain into it. Yeah. You have an understanding of what's going on and and you know how to work with that understanding. In other words, you know what to do analog wise. But again, I go even, I want to say that that may be a large reason you even enjoy diving is there is that risk. There is the possibility that things can go to hell in a handbasket and it tests you and you come out feeling better even after something goes wrong because you made it through it. And, you know, I don't want to say that maybe that's not the right word, made it through it. But, you know, the whole idea is the challenge. And now you have real consequences, not... Well, that's so. That is that not like human existence and human that's life? That's where I was going. Right that's there. That's where I was going. This Boom. Is yeah. Big, what I mean it's, by it's, deep. Is it yeah. any different? Yeah. I mean, is it any different than standing on the top of a the the double black diamond mountain with your skis, knowing that I'm a really good skier? Or I could be Sonny Bono. But I can pull a but, Sonny yeah, Bono. But but I could. <laughs> but at any point. Uh, I could go tumble an ass over tea kettle down this hill exactly. or be in one of those, you know, surfers that is like, f- like we talked about, you know, uh, that flow state and stuff there, uh, you know, a couple of weeks ago of, of, of going against man, against nature, against a 20, 30, 40, 50 foot wave that could literally crush, obliterate and drown your ass. And, and having that, that awareness and that zone and that feeling of being able to ride in the belly of that beast. There, there's, there's something so innate and organic within humanity that if diving was uh, click the start button and let it do it all for you, well, I can do that from my couch right. with, a, 
with a sandwich and a beer on my on my you belly. Put a VR headset on, leaning, yeah. Leaning back, uh, leaning back in the recliner. Like, what fun is that? Yeah. So I so I do the three hundred foot dive on my on my recliner. You know, uh, six beers in. Right. It's nothing compared to doing a hundred foot dive, but really doing it yourself. Agreed. Yeah, and that's why I think you know, no matter what happens with the human race and technology here, I don't think we can we can totally remove, you know, there's always these dystopian future ideas where, you know, you're kind of matrix sized where you're sitting in a, you know, a little uh, test tube of fluid and you've got these electrodes on your brain and every experience you have is being programmed into you from a giant artificial intelligence versus actually really doing something. And I guess where I'm getting at is the risk is part of the human factor as well. The risk is part of the draw, the attraction. The risk is what makes us human. So you've got to, and the only way you get risk is by having incidents. If there were no incidents, if this was 100% safe, you would be saying, there's really no draw for it to me. I mean, there is the beauty in being underwater, but you lose a huge portion of the draw, which is the challenge in rising up to it. And, you know, it's kind of mankind period yeah and, and this is uh this is the 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 breakup between the sport diving industry yeah and you know where a lot of people want it to go is that is is diving all about letting everyone spend their money in this industry so they can go down and see a cool fish in a cool shipwreck or is it something deeper that that you and I find a passion in? Yeah, and I think I think we're a long way from settling that argument. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, these are all great discussions. I I love delving into the reasons why I do almost yeah, anything. Yeah, me too. This but is fun. Anyway, let me ask you a serious question. Shoot, you want the red pill or you want the blue yes, pill? Yes, I take the red <laughs> pill. I want the I want the truth, baby. I want the truth. Okay, so let's uh, let's dive into some of these incidents this is definitely going to be a multi-parter because we just got talking for a half hour about the matrix of scuba diving it always goes there (laughs) doesn't it (laughs) (laughs) all right so in june of 1992 keanu reeves was diving on No, the uh, this is about the Yoo-Hoo boat off of New Jersey. An East Coast wreck diver blew up to the surface as a result of operational problems while diving Trimix on the newly discovered, unidentified New Jersey U-boat, the Yoo-Hoo, at 66 meters, 215 feet. The diver omitted about 30 minutes of decompression and suffered decompression illness during his evacuation. According to on-site observers, the diver, who had completed a trimix course, was grossly overweighted and was diving new equipment, including stage bottles, that he was not well-practiced with. On descent, the diver missed the anchor line, got separated from his partner, and sank straight to the bottom at about 215 feet, missing the wreck. Rather than trying to surface immediately or send up a lift bag indicating diver in distress, the diver searched for the wreck on the bottom under low visibility conditions 
and he burned through approximately 200 cubic feet of gas, 5,660 liters in less than 10 minutes. Out of bottom mix, lost, overweighted with no ascent line, and unable to gain sufficient buoyancy with his dry suit or back-mounted wings, the diver elected to ditch his weight belt and blew to the surface, switching to his EAN-50 decompression gas on the way up. The diver showed no symptoms of decompression sickness upon surfacing and was immediately put on surface oxygen. He was evacuated by Coast Guard Chopper, which did not have any oxygen on board. Unfortunately, he wasn't packed with an O2 cylinder and manifested symptoms in flight. Upon landing, he was successfully treated with a single table six. Clearly, this incident was a blow-up and cannot be counted as a traditional DCI case. To date, there appears to have been only one known incident of decompression illness involving Trimix in approximately five to 600 recent U.S. technical dives. Well, there you go right there for a vote for Trimax. But you, you're looking at this incident and even just the gas usage on that. What do they say? 200 cubic feet in 10 minutes from 215 feet of water. Yeah. So he's breathing, you know. Seven plus addas. Yeah, seven right? and a half addas-ish. That's about, that's over two and a half cubic feet per minute. Of, of consumption. Of gas, yes. That's insane. Just to, you know, give you a, a that's just a rough estimate, but... You're looking at a lot of that stuff, you know. I right when we started reading this article, I was immediately reminded of back in the 2000s. So ten years after this, back in the 2000s, do you remember there was a uh, a technical recovery team that was being formed by a cop diver because cop divers aren't allowed to go technical ranges; it goes into OSHA violations and whatnot in commercial diving but yeah so a lot right. a lot of your police rescue teams they, they have a limit of 130 right. feet is the most that they're allowed to do right yes. so he was forming a a team of divers that could do the technical rescues a volunteer volunteer team, team right and i was I was asked to come on i was one of the i think one of the few few mixed gas divers in the area so brought me on and, and my old buddy who was at the time a dive master and you know recreational dive master so he was being brought on too as a uh, support diver. So he had never had stage bottles on or sling bottles, right? Purely recreational gear. And for the first training dive, the scenario is us mixed gas divers are going to meet at a 70-foot mark, and we're going to pick up bottles from our support divers. So I come up, and I, I see my support diver, which is my, my partner, who's the dive master at the shop. He had just finished his dive master course. Anyway... He's plunging completely vertically in the water. He's going so fast in the water because he's got two stage bottles clipped on, and he's in a recreational jacket BCD with a single tank. He's plunging so fast that his fins are pointing straight up. Boom, one goes off. It's pulled off because his fin fin goes right, flying, just flying poof, off. goes down the bottom. Boom, the second one goes off. He has no fins on now, and he's plunging plummeting to the bottom right and i'm in a hundred hundred and twenty feet of water or so where you're at yeah gil so this was at gilboa and it was right off the dock at the deep end so yeah it's about 125 ish there so i stopped him got the bottles off of him got his fins back to him but i'm think you know 
bringing this up to the to the person that organized this was lost. It was completely lost on him that the a this guy was overweighted. B never had he had never in his life had sling bottles on, and you just threw them in the deep end with him in a in a recreational BCD that maybe had thirty pounds of lift on it, right? Right. Well, I mean, that was the that was the old dives in the the late nineties and uh, the the early two thousands. It was the the brawn and the balls is how you did stuff, right? right. And I That's mean, it right there. So I mean, the, the the thinking of the people that did pull a dive like that off was there's my new bar though. Tough. <laughs> Toughen up, exactly. man. Let's, <laughs> Toughen up and deal and with it. Then they come up and you know light a cigar and and have a couple, have a whole bottle of scotch, cheap scotch. Not even the good not stuff. even the good stuff because that's too wussified. You know, if you're drinking uh, designer scotch, right. but right. yeah, I I think back on that. I mean, that's the first thing that popped in my my mind is the the picture I had of my old partner just plummeting down into the depths, and then you look again at how much gas this guy was breathing two and a half cubic feet per minute sack rate well when you look at the um the 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 typical diver especially like in these early days of of technical diving most of them because there really wasn't the attention to balance and buoyancy control that exists in the world today like so most people on routine dove overweighted it was just the norm, at least slightly overweighted, and they use the BCD to kind of fix the buoyancy control. Yeah. Let now, so you're overweighted to begin with, and then you throw on stage models, which, whether or not they were aluminum or steel, but they were probably steel at the at the time back in the day, because that's what everybody was diving with those steel forty five. OMS bottles was a pretty popular deco bottle back in those days. But but even let's say that they were aluminum bottles. Full, those aluminum bottles are going to be negatively buoyant. Let alone if they're the steel bottles that are very yeah. negatively buoyant. Plus deco bottle that's uh, you know uh, negatively buoyant. So he's got all this heaviness. Yeah. yeah, well, the more weight, even if you can counteract it with... Uh you know, a BCD, a wing, your, your dry suit, it's a lot of gas. And it, especially, you know, down deep and you're using your dry suit on top of your BCD becomes it becomes dynamically unstable. It's really hard to, to get rid of that gas when you're blowing up that quick. So, And then not to mention when you have, you know, when you have to use that much gas to establish neutral buoyancy, <laughs> it's going to throw the, the pitch of your body off so yeah. much that now trying to, even if you were able to achieve neutral buoyancy, that's where we talk about your trim in the water. If, if you're nearly vertical in, because you've got so much gas in the shoulders of, of that air cell, it's going to be so much work to travel horizontally right. in order to get over to this site you're looking for swimming aimlessly so the amount of workload that's going in the the narcosis that building because of that co2 because of all the work you've got to do that i mean that right there is the snowball that's that vicious spiral yeah. i think his only saving grace was that he was on trimix and that's why he came back from this well yeah there you go 
so yeah, I, again, I think uh, human factors, Gareth would would be able to, you know, look at this and say, what was it that led up to this? Why did he even approach this dive in this manner? Well, so it's a pretty cool discussion, right? So again, you know, we, we mentioned about uh, Gareth releasing that show here next week. And it, it's just that because this is all the information that we have on this story, right? Uh, we don't, we don't see that his alarm didn't go right. off. Right. And uh, he was running late for the boat that morning, you know, if, if that happened, right? We don't see that, uh, you know, he forgot to take the garbage out the night before and his wife was bitching at him in the morning because, uh, you know, before he left, so he had that stressor. And he, uh, she didn't uh, get up with him because she was pissed at him. So he. She didn't make him breakfast, so all he had was a Pop-Tart, you know, or, or whatever, like all these things that when we look at the show Gareth's going to put out, he is able to take that emergency and back it up days, weeks, months leading up to the fatality that he's going to talk about. Right, I think, you, and it's from the viewpoint of the people that were with the victim and and uh, the victim's wife as well, so... Yeah, fascinating stuff, man. That's that's why I'm really digging the the, the way he's breaking down these stories in, in a in a light that is so important to the the community of divers. Right, agreed. Okay, let's move into uh, July of 1992. We're gonna leave the the ocean and move into Alachua Sink in Florida. A newly trained cave diver got lost in the cavern zone after being separated from the team's line in zero-visibility conditions at Alachua Sink and drowned. His partner survived. Instead of following the permanent line, which begins at a log in the basin, the team ran a reel during the evening dive in order to make their way down through the sloping cavern zone to the main tunnel. The basin had near-zero-visibility conditions due to the seasonal algae bloom which usually clears up at about 130 feet, 40 meters, at the upstream-downstream tunnel junction. About 18 to 23 meters, 60 to 80 feet into the dive, the team realized they had missed the main tunnel. After searching for the tunnel for several minutes in one-meter visibility, they decided to turn the dive and lost visual and physical contact with each other. The surviving partner reeled in, believing that his partner was ahead of him on the line. Reaching the surface alone and realizing his partner was still in the water, he attempted numerous line searches in order to locate the diver without success and went for help. Though the lost diver had several hours of gas in his double 95s, he was unable to find his way up and out of the funnel-shaped cavern zone. A contributing factor may have been that he was only carrying a 50-foot jump reel rather than the 150-foot safety reel recommended by the cave diving training agencies. Ironically, if the dive had been conducted during the day, observers speculate that it should have been easy to find a way out. Alachua Sink is considered an advanced dive by experienced cave divers due to low visibility conditions, depth, and the arduous climb out of the water. Most divers wait for the winter season to make the dive because of the low visibility in the basin during the spring and summer. Due to the poor conditions, 
it took three and a half days for teams to recover the body, which was found wedged in the ceiling of the cavern. Ouch. Yeah, frightening stuff. Yeah, that these stories about the cave diving fatalities are always really too easy to visualize in my mind, you know, having been in the caves. And I don't know, I can't remember what it was like pre, pre-cave diver for me as far as reading a story like this and then visualizing it in my mind automatically. I don't think I would, but now that I am a cave diver and you talk about, you know, how they found the body and what happened leading up to, you know, him dying. Um, it's really easy just to picture low vis getting lost. It's simple. It's simple to happen, you know, off the line, new diver. This is a brand new cave diver, you know? Well, it's, um, again, a tale as old as time of getting some confidence and thinking you're ready to take on the world so quick, so fast, you know, because you want to build that resume rather than building the experience. Yeah, you're forgetting about the journey and you're all focused on the destination. Exactly. Thing, so. Yeah, and, and you get it, you know, you get a couple of uh, cave divers sitting around the pub, you know, it's, it's a little bit of a chest thump of who's done what or, or wreck divers, you know, sitting around after diver or Christ, even like basic open water divers. You know, that that newly open water diver that's only done the 30 foot dive is going to feel inadequate compared to somebody who's been to 130 or or beyond. So you you can easily see that the the push is made to I need that number in my logbook. Yeah. In order to be able to, you know, hang around and chat with the rest of the gang to, to be able to feel like I'm part of the group. Right. Because people put so much focus on the destination and not the journey. Right. And I think if you can, you know, give any advice to newer divers, newer cave divers, newer recreational divers is just chill out and enjoy it. It'll come. You'll, you'll get you'll build that resume, but you won't if you try to build the end of it on the first day. You know, just just take the journey. Enjoy exactly. the journey. That's where the learning happens, too. There's so much learned just in experience. And it, it can be learned, you know, relatively safely versus, say this guy did live. What Do you, do you think he'd come away with the proper lessons learned? Or would this become his new bar? This is, okay, I made it through that. I'm going to go back to Alachua Al, Al Sink. You know, uh, that's my new, you know, that's my new limit right there. And I got to keep pushing it. Well, yeah, because uh, his uh, answer would have been, uh, next time I'm diving with uh, double 120s instead of double 95s. Right, right. Right, because uh, I might have needed that extra half hour again. Not even realizing, yeah, you know, that if he, if say his safety spool did allow him to find his way out and it was only a 100-footer, not like the 150. Did he say it was 100-footer or 50-footer? Uh, he only had a 50. Okay. Say he did make it with his 50-footer. Well, now he says 50-footer works. He doesn't even know that the value of the 150-foot was, you know, to get you out, to help get you out. He went that, that long, long safety spool. So, Yeah, now you had mentioned earlier that you don't even know how you would have um, – reacted to this prior to having cave oh, visualized training. it yeah i Visu- yeah. visualize this because i think uh, and very rightfully so and I, and I would agree with you for me as well is it's because accident analysis is something that is like hidden from most recreational divers oh yeah 
most recreational divers go into training and what you're taught not Mm -hmm. to do is as an instructor is to talk about the scary stuff yeah right this is all fun this is all easy we all can do this buy the good bc buy the you know buy the high-end computer because all this stuff is going to get you home diving safe nothing goes wrong and again it doesn't until it does so what what Menduno was doing in these early days of Aquacore and what Sheck was doing with that blueprint for survival and what Gareth is now doing with this this resurrection of these concepts with this just culture and human factors is that very thing is no let's take a more realistic look at the accidents that do happen not to find fault but to find a pattern in the thinking or the breakdown of thinking maybe is a better way to look at it that puts divers into making these decisions that in the right situation and right frame of mind and all conditions being perfect wouldn't normally happen, but they can once that snowball gets rolling. Oh, yeah. You you have to uh, figure out what is the behavior, what is the rationale for the behavior. And that's where a lot of the the problems really start is there's a behavior instilled and it happened for a reason, whether again, he was thinking about something going on at home. He had a bad night the night before with his wife or her, her husband or whatever, you know, even to that point in this story, what made him bring only a 50 foot safety spool? Uh, he's a new out of class. Was it taught or did he say, I lost it. It's not important. Or did he accidentally grab the wrong one? But it wasn't, and it wasn't even done in the pre-dive check. And that's just a small little tidbit I'm focusing on. But you know, in the big picture, right? Sure. But it, but it's there, there's many reasons that could have led up to him grabbing, you know, just just right. That one. We, we we don't know all that part. Exactly. Right? It's like you know, uh, it's like going out, you know, driving out to a Great Lakes charter boat and. Again, waking up late, yeah, get, getting lost because your GPS sent you to the wrong direction. Uh, everybody else is on the boat texting you, going, "Where are you at?" Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm right there. We got lost. You're rushing to get everything on the boat. You get on the, you get on the boat, and you realize you forgot something. All right now, boat's already out, out on blue water. Right? So you're, you're not going to have it. Do you continue the dive on? Do you go without it? Do you make adjustments? All these are, are little things that go on in the mind that lead up to what ends up being a major problem or a major fatality. But so often the industry has looked on the simple thing that the guy ran out of air and his, his buddy wasn't there to share gas with him. Yeah. But that may or may not have been the, the real incident. Yeah, that, that was the, the last, that was the, the big money maker, right. no doubt about it. But there's all these little factors that led up to that breakdown in thinking right and and to identify those that's and that's what i think you know folks will get out of uh the show coming up um should we move on to the doria yes let's do that let's move uh move on to the doria which is almost a a dive that you described earlier uh diving the andrea doria an experienced diver wearing double overpressurized 72s Ran out of gas. Whoopsie. Whoopsie. Um, now, you would think that overfilling your 72s would have been all you needed to not run out of gas, right? Well, <laughs> I mean, overfilling, overpressurization is is a common practice down in cave country. 
But you're already in pretty big tanks when you do that. You're in big bottles. Like, they don't have much bigger, so you pressurize them as much as you can, you know. And it's safe. I mean, the the steel tanks are taking a... I mean, it's just been in, in a common practice in that community for decades without incident, right? As far as the overpressurization. So I'm not over here preaching. Yeah, well, I think a lot of people yeah. would, are going to hear that and they go, well, I can fill up you know, my tank. Over, yeah. Overfilling your tanks, yeah. you know, so you've got more gas. That makes perfect sense. But, but, but I think like we're like knowing what you and I know now, the amount of gas in the bottles isn't the, the question. Right. Right. It's 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 the wrong way to look at it. Like so starting the dive by over pressurizing so that I don't have a, a, a problem at the end of the dive is the backwards way to think about it. The logical way of, of and knowing what we know now is regardless of what you have in the bottles, you have to start with the end of Yeah. Knowing what you need to get right. home. What and if that means you've got five minutes of bottom time or five hours of bottom time, well then that's gonna determine what you can do swimming around right exactly you gotta you know what do i want to have with me should all hell break loose at the furthest deepest point of my dive is kind of the mentality to approach from the beginning and yeah going in with uh although it was pretty probably pretty common i like i we talked about it was pretty common back in the 80s but this is 90s yeah yeah. so he was making his 11th penetration dive on the doria in 240 feet of water his partner, who entered the water with a half-filled set of 120s. What? What? Half-filled set of 120s. Which he mentions is an insufficient gas to safely make well, the dive. Yeah. But he survived. Both were I would, breathing I trimix. Would, I would go out on a limb and say overpressurized 72s were also an insufficient <laughs> amount of gas to make the dive, as evidenced with the I ran out of gas scenario. But go on. Sorry. Both were breathing trimix, though neither was formally trained in its use. The team was separated during a penetration in the wreck. When the surviving partner exited at 220 feet with only several hundred PSI remaining in his doubles and found his stage bottles clipped off near the anchor line, his partner was nowhere to be found. The body was later recovered. His tanks were empty. A close friend who had trained with the diver reported that the diver had had problems managing his gas on several prior occasions. What's more was that the diver was using Trimix as a suit inflation gas, and the chill in 45 degrees Fahrenheit, 7 degrees Celsius water, which was possibly a contributing factor in the accident, one that could have impaired the diver's judgment. Agreed, yeah. Helium inf- inflation in a suit is... Not uh, not a great choice for insulator gas. Yeah, so typically we would use a, a different gas for filling the dry suit, not that same back gas that you're breathing with the helium that's going to really chill the body. Yeah, whether it's air or argon. Just something that's not... Not helium. <laughs> yeah. So definitely that would have put a chill on the dive, for sure. I mean, this is just... this is. I'm I'm looking at this report, and it's basically... Here's the results. Here's what he went into the water with, and we don't. He got lost inside the wreck. That's what it appears. So we don't know much yes. else. So I don't. It's hard to. It's hard to go further into that, right? Well, exactly, right. So if we backtrack and look at the the, if we look back on the time in the early '90s, and looking at accidents was mostly 
a game of which one of these guys screwed up to cause the one f- dying, right? The guy that made it to the surface, even if he was 100% at fault, is going to tell the story in a way, knowing that everybody's judging, yeah. that's going to put him coming out on yeah, top. Yeah, well, the victors write history to include There that. you go. Yeah. Exactly. And, I, and this, again, is where Gareth is going, is let's have a real discussion, knowing that we're not looking to put blame on anybody that led to who decided that or why did we decide we were going to do a penetration dive? Did we have all the equipment that we needed? Were we diligent enough with running a line? Were we both prepared to, to take over if anyone else could? Like all these little variables. Rather than just knowing that two people went in, they got lost inside of a wreck, one of them made it out, one of them didn't. Right. It's right. So many, so many variables in there that that could have led up to this fatality. Right. So that's a hard analysis, right there. It's difficult to make any kind of, you know, to bring anything out of it. I mean, you look at it on its face, and you're going, "Well, not the best choice of bottles," you know. Well, yeah, like but that. so 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 what's so on that face is what's the answer? Bigger bottles. Yeah, exactly. Where, where do we uh, come up? What do we come uh, from that? Yeah, what yeah. Do we get from that. Well, uh, the team got separated during the penetration. What's the answer? Don't get separated. There you go. It's that simple. Just don't get separated. Well, why don't we just take it one step uh, further? He, uh, he... Don't die. Just don't die when you go diving. <laughs> right. yeah. right, right, right. And, and it's easy to look back and uh, again, you know, you talk about having the 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 hindsight right being twenty twenty. You know, it, it's easy, but it's not easy because we don't really know. What is it that led up to, you know, okay, uh, he got out of the wreck in 220 feet with only 700 PSI remaining. Okay, so if you come out with more than only several hundred, you're, are you you're okay? okay? I made it for, I made it that time. <laughs> Clearly, that That's was the issue. Bar. only at 700. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So tough one right there. Well, look at it and just, I think it's, it's there in, in this group. To illustrate, like back then, people were dying on the Doria on a, you know, I don't want to say daily basis, but pretty regularly, there were divers dying on the Doria. And that is also what kind of made Doria at the time the Mount Everest of scuba diving. It was on everybody, anybody who was into tech diving, I remember it was on my bucket list. It was like, okay, I got to do the Doria. Um, And I don't know if it's a sick psychological thing, like all these people have died on it. I want to do it now to show, you know, I'm not going to die. Well, yes, there, there is a little bit of that proving that, that you're manly enough, tough enough, smart enough to, to handle Well, it. I had a lot and of hair in my what, chest what, at the time. I was pretty manly, so I don't think it was a manly thing for me. Um, a lot of people are trying to prove, prove to themselves that they're tough enough, they're smart enough, that they can do it. Yeah, and I think what Gareth is going to try to show is none of those people, none of these people on this list, entered the water thinking that they were going to be the one that this overfilled, pressurized seventy twos they were going to die right because they had went through the the extra safety of overfilling. Yeah, the bombs. in their mind, they had covered you know, all the bases. Know, right, yeah. correct, and I, I think that's what Gareth is going to time and time again try to show people 
it's impossible to cover all the bases. And that's what we're talking about. There's risk yeah. inherent in it. Your behavior, even well prior to the dive, your behavior in your classes training for the dive will set you up for this incident, right? Uh, and there's a really great, in the video, you know, people, I, I really want people to watch this video because there's that, um, uh, I don't want to call it simulation, there's that animation showing how all of, you know, like a light is being beamed through these squares and there's holes on the squares and each square represents, you know, a person's behavior that day, their training, you know, all the factors that can lead up to an accident and there's all these holes and individually they, they occlude the light and when the light you know, when these holes all line up and the light goes all the way through to the accident, that's what you're having is your training's got holes in it. Your your personal behavior's got accidents in it. Your education has uh, holes in it, you know. When all of these holes line up, that's when you have this, right? Right, yeah. On any given day, the holes don't mean anything. Right. But when uh, when the planets align, boom. Look yeah. out. Yeah, wild stuff, man. So, hey, listen, this uh, we're going to have to turn this into a multi-part for yeah. sure. We got a, a lot more of these incidents to go. Uh, this is going to be fun. I'm enjoying the heck out of it. Uh, why don't you remind the people um, of Gareth's show that he's putting out? It's going to be on Vimeo, right? It's a Vimeo. Yeah, it's a Vimeo video from Gareth of uh, Human Diver or Human Factors in Diving. And it's going to be aired on the 20th of May, which is Wednesday, coming up at, it's 1749 hundred hours in London time. So for us folks in the U.S., in our time zone, the Eastern, uh, that's going to be 1249 p.m., right? So going on 1 p.m. Uh, but they're using that, that, uh, 1749 London time and it's it's basically this incident happened in Hawaii and that that Hawaii time is when the incident happened so that's that's where the time is coming from um and it's really great because I mean, what I really liked about it was you had you had the wife of the diver who could explain exactly what was going on in with her husband leading up to this dive the training, right, the mentality, the, the, the stresses, right. the stresses on, with the class, the stresses on the family, the the stresses on work life. Yeah, there's a lot going yeah, on. Yeah, and he's a military guy. He's not a military diver, but he learned to dive in the military. Um, so, anyway, he he has that kind of approach with with uh, accomplishing goals. So you got you have that you you learn a little bit about his psychology at least from his wife's point of view right, and then you have the people that were in the class with him, and this is a rebreather incident so they were taking a rebreather class experienced divers, and you t they talk about the instruction the courses the things leading up to it anyway, go watch the video, uh, see what you think it's a great great way to get some exposure to what. Human Factors is trying to do what, what they're trying to uh, show people in analyzing accidents. Yeah, yeah, and you can find uh, Gareth Locke on Facebook, the Human Diver on Facebook. I'm sure he'll have a link posted to the show there if, uh, if you're having troubles finding it on your own. Uh, there should be links everywhere. And 
on that note, let's. Uh, well, well, we're not signing logbooks. Where this is a, this is a holdover dive. We're uh, this is going to be a multi-part. I'm so. going to my stage bottle. There you go. You should have been on it already. Going to my second stage battle. I'm going to my second. I pressurized that for you (laughs) so that you wouldn't have any problems. I have an overpressurized 13 cubic foot stage bottle. So it's, I have it at 19,000 PSI. So I'm up there about 90 cubic feet there. Anyway. (laughs) All right, everybody. Hey, uh, this was a a lot of fun. This is going to be a lot of fun for the next couple of weeks. Go to thegreatdivepodcast.com and put in your vote for the Pandemic 2020 Madness bracket. Submit your bracket. You think you can uh, figure this whole bracket out from beginning to end? Get on there, submit your bracket for us to uh, to look at, see how uh, who has your pick for winning the whole thing. And don't forget to vote every week. There's going to be a, a new poll up for you guys to vote on your winners for each and every week. We really appreciate everyone for having fun along with us during this big bracket challenge. And on that note, I think we will see you all. One one more thing, Jamesy. Well, I, I like to interrupt you right in the middle of your exit there. But I just wanted to uh, yeah, thank yeah. all the folks that showed up for our Be Live. Uh, and also yes. we might, might want to tell them, hey, uh, Monday again at 7, 10 p.m. Eastern time. That's 19, 10, 100 hours for us uh, military folk. Uh, we're going to do, sir, yes, sir, yes, sir, at ease, soldier. Uh, we're going to, we're going to throw another live out there and it's going to be fun. We're going to go through, uh, what we'll be doing, mansion. we'll be doing the lives throughout the pandemic 2020 exactly. madness brackets. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Sure. We're hoping to have a couple good, uh, new surprises for folks and, um, yeah, we'll, we'll look at some divers and some great things they've done and, and the matchups. All right. Well, sounds good. Well, we'll see you guys on Monday night, and we'll talk to you again next week. Buenos nachos. Let's uh you want to get into some of these incidents. Yeah, but I want to pee first. All, All right. right, let's pee first. I'm going to do okay. the same thing.